You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to part four of the Pete Ruins Exodus series. But before we begin, a couple of very quick announcements because I'm afraid I'm going to forget. First of all, October 4th and 5th, I'm going to be at Evolving Faith, which is in Denver, Colorado this year. And uh, that should be fun. And also, on September 23rd, uh, we're offering a one-time-only, one-evening-one-hour class on Genesis. And here's the good news, you pay what you want. Just have to reserve your seat. And so, you can get information about that on the website, like exactly when and where. I just, I think it's a 23rd. Yeah, it's a 23rd. Hope you can make it to that. It should be fun. It's a one-hour-only class. I'm just talking about what I think are highlights of the book of Genesis and why I think it's so important and what I think is really cool about the book that doesn't always get picked up, you know, in casual readings of the book itself. So, that's sort of what that's about. Okay, commercial's over. Let's get into part four of Pete Ruins Exodus. And this is going to take us from the departure from Egypt over the Red Sea through chapters 19, and that is specifically beginning in chapter 13, verse 17. The middle of chapter 13 through to the end of chapter 19, that's the departure from Egypt and the journey to Sinai. And just to review where we've been up to this point in this series as a whole, we started, of course, with Moses, and he gets this call from God to be the agent through which the Israelites will be delivered. And he has early struggles. He really doesn't want to do it. But he finally gives in and goes ahead and he confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't care what Moses says or what their no-name God says, never heard of him. And of course, that results in the plagues, which wind up convincing Pharaoh that, yeah, I'm no match for Israel's God. And especially the plague of death, which is the sort of tit-for-tat of payback for what Pharaoh did, drowning the uh, male infant's Uh, in the Nile way back in chapter one, and now they're dead as well. The firstborn of Egypt are dead, as the story goes. And so, now they depart. All that's over, now they're leaving Egypt never to go back again. Now, remember, Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, we talked about that in several places in, in, in Exodus, Sinai is the goal of the rescue, right? Remember, Aaron and Moses say, let my people go so that they might worship me in the wilderness. The wilderness is where Sinai is. And they have no clue at this point, at least I can't see they have a clue, about where they are going afterward, namely into the land of Israel to take over for the Canaanites and to eradicate them and exterminate them and take their land. They don't know where that's going. All they know is they're going to Mount Sinai. And uh, even though the land and entrance into the land, and I'm going to say just frankly, the monarchy is really the true end goal of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. Actually, I think, and I've, I've written about this elsewhere, but the Pentateuch as a whole, I think, is really an entrance ramp onto that central important period of time when the Israelites are in the land. That's where I think all this is going. But we're just in Exodus. Okay. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. 
Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Okay, so we've got like six plus chapters here. They can be divided, I think, into two parts. The one is the actual departure from Egypt itself. It starts in 1317. It goes to, toward the end of chapter 15, 1521. And then the journey to Sinai, which picks up at 1522, and goes to the end of chapter 19. And these six chapters have some pretty well-known stories in them. So, first, let's, let's look at some highlights from part one, the departure from Egypt across the Red Sea. One thing to note is that we have two versions of the same event. We have a prose version, which is 1317 through 14, chapter 14, and then the poetic version, which is in 15, 1 to 21. This is similar, if, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, in chapters 4 and 5, we also have a prose version and a poetic version of the exploits of the judge Deborah. And the poetry, the poetic version is, well, according to biblical scholars who study Hebrew and stuff like that, it is certainly older. At least the core of it is older, uh, if not the whole thing. And there are reasons for saying that. And, and that becomes important in a minute when we get into chapter 15 because of the kinds of things that it says. But this is just a reminder to us that we have here again, as we have so often in the Bible, evidence of different traditions that are probably written or, or originated orally in different times and places. And here we have editors at a later time putting them together just back to back. It's like Genesis 1 and 2. You have two creation stories and they sort of are back to back, edited together and left there, even though they don't say exactly the same thing. Okay, so let's look at that prose, the narrative version first. That's the first one that pops up in 13 and 14. They depart from Egypt. And here's the thing, Yahweh makes them look lost in order to pick a fight with Pharaoh. The people freak out, the Israelites, and God drives back the Red Sea to open an escape route. The Israelites pass through safely, but the Egyptians drown and they wash up on the shore. That's how the story goes. Very famous story. 
See, one thing to notice here is that Pharaoh was all ready to let them go. He had been convinced after the last plague, he said, finally, just go. Just, I don't want to see you again. Just get out of here. See, he, he was ready to let them go, and he did. But God wants Pharaoh to follow the Israelites. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And you see, it's, it's chapter 14, verse uh, 8 and 17. And especially 17 is explicit that the purpose of the hardening is so that the Egyptians will follow the Israelites. See, it's hard to pass over the fact that God wants them dead. Now, as harsh as that is, and I think it is harsh, we can offer a contextual sort of theological explanation. By contextual, I mean the, the groove of the story itself up to this point. And we can read this drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea as tit for tat, payback for another pharaoh drowning the Israelite male infants in the Nile way back in chapter 1. And also, you know, you've been treating my people harshly, says Yahweh, so I'm going to treat your people harshly. Although, I still wonder if this is really necessary to drown them. How about just letting the sea close up so they can't cross? But, you know, they drown. That's how the story goes. This is an example of violence in the Bible, and it raises some eyebrows, and, you know, not just for today, but this is a story that has made people think for quite a while. It's caused a lot of consternation for one of my own children when she was very young. She came home from Sunday school, and this was the story, and she came home just very, very upset, asking, you know, what kind of a God is this? Right? I mean, aren't these God's children too? Why does God do stuff like this? See, this is not the Bible's best moment, in my opinion, but this is how the might and power of God is expressed, again, in an ancient tribal context. Your God is great because your enemies are destroyed before you. Now, some of you probably know how I handle this sort of divine violence, uh, not as a depiction of what really happened, or not as a depiction of what God is really like, but as a depiction of how ancient people of faith, true ancient people of faith, albeit in a tribalistic Iron Age society. The Iron Age started around 1200 BCE, and it goes well into the first millennium BCE. But that's, that's the basic time of Israel's existence as a people is during the Iron Age. And this is how people in the Iron Age express their faith, express their understanding of the gods or of God. And this is what gods did. They go to battle. And remember, you know, way back in the first episode, I think, along with most biblical scholars, I, I said that I don't think Exodus is a historical account even if it preserves an ancient, let's call it historical memory, as biblical scholars like to call it. So, I don't think we would see this if someone had been videotaping, so to speak. This reflects an understanding of ancient Israelites about what their God is like. That's my opinion, and that's why I quote, get out of it. But I'm not trying to get out of anything, I'm trying to understand it. If you're interested, you know, you can see some blog posts that I've written on violence. You can just type in violence in the search bar, or an early chapter in the Bible tells me so I deal with biblical violence as I understand it, because it's like the number one question I get pretty much from young people today. That and human sexuality. Those are the things that they want to really talk about, so there you have it. And another thing here about this prose narrative section the Israelites see the Egyptians coming, and the Israelites, they grumble and they complain. You know, basically, you know, we could have died just as easily in Egypt, Moses. Why bring us all the way out here to just trap us at the sea? 
And then Moses says something interesting that I think is often misunderstood, which is why I want to bring it up. He basically says, you know, don't be afraid. After today, you'll, you'll never see these Egyptians again. You know, I'm quoting verse 14 of chapter 14. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to keep still. See, that's not a soothing word. It's not, it's typically understood. They're, they're there. Just calm your hearts. God will take care of everything. Just, just be still and know that I am God, as we read in the Psalms. You know, the Lord will fight for you, but just, just chill. But I don't think that's at all what Moses is saying in this story. This is a rebuke. The Lord will fight for you. You need to keep your mouth shut. You need to stop complaining. And this is the first of many sort of rebukes of Moses that we're going to see toward the Israelites in Moses' lifetime. This is like the real beginning of this grumbling theme that we're going to see a lot of. So, he's not making them feel calmed about this. He's just basically saying, shut up. (laughs) What else? You've seen plagues, the Red Sea open for heaven's sake, and you're still complaining? Come on. Another thing. This concerns the actual parting of the Red Sea, and this is in verse 21. Actually, might as well talk about this now. The Red Sea is really the Sea of Reeds. That's what it says in Hebrew. And where the Sea of Reeds is, is a topic of a lot of discussion among people who look for these sorts of things. Like, is it a a lake? Is it a, you know, a a marsh or something like that? But the reason why it's, you know, we say Red Sea in our English translations is that this has to do with influence of Greek translators of the Bible before the time of Jesus. And it was a little, there was a little bit confusion about what body of water was actually represented by this term Red Sea. Now, if you look at a map today of, you know, the modern Middle East and where it says Red Sea is this massive body of water, that's not what anybody meant, but it's hard to know exactly what they meant when they said Red Sea back in this Greek period. But in the biblical text, in the Hebrew text, it says Sea of Reeds, but again, we don't know where that is either. Anyway, but all that to the side, the parting of the Red Sea echoes the creation story. This is the theological point I want to make. See, Moses stretched out his hand with the staff, presumably, and an east wind divided the waters of the Red Sea and they parted. Now, wind, the Hebrew word is ruach, which means spirit or wind, and that's the same Ruach of Genesis 1 that is hovering over the deep. What's the deep? The deep is the primordial sea at the dawn of creation that God has to tame, that God has to put into it, put in its place to allow for life to appear. See, the wind drives back water, giving life. That's the same in both the Genesis creation story of Genesis chapter 1 and this parting of the sea here in Exodus. The wind, right, it turned the sea to dry land, I'm quoting here, and the waters were divided. It's better to think of the waters as not maybe divided, although that's fine, but as pushed back, pushed out of the way, revealing the dry land beneath, which is also the language in Genesis chapter 1, the third day of creation. It's the same thing. The waters were divided, revealing the dry land beneath. In both stories, waters are separated, pushed aside, revealing what was there all the time. Dry land. In other words, this is getting into Genesis 1 a little bit more than you're paying for here, but in Genesis 1, this is why it's not creation out of nothing. 
what you have is a deep, a massive chaotic water that God divides and splits, revealing the dry land, i.e. the earth beneath it. Those things were already there in Genesis chapter 1. And actually, Genesis chapter 1 makes no sense unless we understand the ideology of the ancient Israelites here and how they thought about what a creator God does. It's not out of nothing. That comes later. It's in the Bible. It's just not here. See, think of um, taking a leaf blower to a big puddle on the sidewalk after heavy rain. The water is pushed aside by the wind, right? By the force of the leaf blower. And the sidewalk is revealed that's always been there underneath. That's sort of what's happening in Genesis 1 and in Exodus 14 in the parting of the sea. Now, the point, why well, am I bringing this up? Uh, we touched about this in uh, a couple of earlier episodes. The point is that God's act of redemption here crossing the Red Sea is a replay, so to speak, of God's act of creation, which is to say, redemption, saving, delivering, redeeming, whatever word you want to use, um, is an act of recreation. Hang with me here. As with the plagues, parting the sea is getting creation involved in saving God's people and destroying the enemies of God's people. See, like in the flood, right? You have the waters of the uh, upper atmosphere above the vault, above that dome, those waters are let go, and they come crashing down to defeat the bad guys, which is basically everybody but Noah and his family. Well, that's what's happening too here in the Exodus story in chapter 14, that these waters are again separated, and just like the flood story, they come crashing back down again. But Israel, or Noah, are not affected negatively, they're actually delivered through that. See, to save is to create Again, and we hear, hear echoes of that in the New Testament, and, and I know I've mentioned this, but just very briefly, I want to mention it again, because I think it's so important theologically. Uh, in the New Testament, we see echoes of this, for example, where Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is saved, there is a new creation. See, to be saved means to start anew, and to use the language of John's gospel, that you're born again, you're starting over, you have a new start which is certainly what is happening here at the Red Sea. Israel is being transformed, recreated from a group of slaves, and now beginning to be formed into what it's going to become, namely a nation. Okay, I mean, having said all that, it's still a really violent story, and let's not cover over that, but there are theological things happening there as well. But speaking of violence, let's turn to chapter 15 here, the poetic version of the Red Sea Crossing. Okay, so for one thing, this is, I alluded to this before, but this may be one of the oldest pieces of Israelite literature we have. Because of the Hebrew style, scholars can sort of tell where we are in stages of the evolution. That's a fine word to use, the evolution of biblical Hebrew. And biblical scholars, you know, this is like routine. This is like saying the sky is up. This is very early. This is not written during the monarchy, but probably going back to before the time of David. It could be that old, which is very old. And here's the thing. This very, very old piece of ancient Hebrew literature depicts God as a fierce warrior. And it's not uncommon to hear scholars muse that Israel's view of God began as one of being a warrior, due to, understandably, due to the cultural influences 
And then the view of God grew to include other metaphors like gardener, planter, potter, lawgiver, things like that. Warrior might become less prominent, less harsh, perhaps. God is, God's depiction might become less harsh. I don't want to paint that in too simplistic a, a way, like there's an evolution where God starts off as a warrior and ends as like, you know, a tree hugger or something like that. But we do have the earliest reflections of Israelite religion in this these poetic sections, and there God is a fierce, no-nonsense, take-no-prisoners warrior. And then you come later to the book of Jonah, where God, like, you know, I actually have compassion on Israel's enemies, I don't want to kill them. Something's going on in this trajectory within the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament itself. And so, this song praises Yahweh for destroying his enemies by drowning them in the sea. And for that reason, Yahweh is praised as a God who has no equal, as we read in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Catch that there, among the gods. We have here one of many examples, and you've heard this before, one of many examples in the Old Testament of Israel's belief that their God, Yahweh, was not the only God, but was the best God, the one truly worthy of worship. In fact, as I said before, that might be the point of the whole Pentateuch, to make the case that Yahweh alone is worthy of Israel's worship. See, Israel does not practice, I have a whole blog post series probably, and uh, a podcast from probably way back in season one talking about this, but Israel did not practice monotheism, at least through most of its history that we see in the Old Testament, but monolatry. The difference is this. Monotheism means there's only one God. Monolatry means you only worship one, but you acknowledge the existence of others. We saw this in the plague story, right? God is passing judgment on all the gods of Egypt, right? Exodus 12, 12. What does that mean? What does that mean, passing judgment on all the gods of Egypt? It means, well, there's an assumption there that there are other gods that God is, that Yahweh is passing judgment on. And if we miss this dynamic, that Yahweh is better or the best by far of all the other gods, or if we try to sort of step around it because the theology of it bothers us a bit, we're going to miss the theology of the book. Making the Israelites into monotheists here is premature. That happens later on in Israel's history. I would say certainly by the time you get to Jesus and well before that, we can call the Israelites monotheists. Only one God exists. The heavens might be active places, but they're not gods. But here, that's not the case, right? And making these Israelites here of Exodus into monotheists just creates confusion in the story. You can't make sense of things like Exodus 12.12, where Yahweh says he's passing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Okay, I've beaten that dead horse enough. Okay, next point. This song that's sung at the sea mentions something. It's subtle, but it mentions something that doesn't happen until much later in the biblical story. And namely, I'm talking about verses 17 and 18. So, here's how it begins. You, Yahweh, brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your possession. The place, O Lord, that you made your abode. Now, what is this mountain of your possession? What is this abode? Well, maybe it's talking about Mount Sinai, because that's where they're going. They're not there yet, but nearly so. Give it a couple chapters, they'll be there. It's still in the past tense, though, right? See, this raises another question, though. Could it be referring to another mountain and another abode altogether? 
Hang in there. Keep reading. Follows this by saying this, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The sanctuary, the, 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 the holy place. Well, what is that sanctuary? Could it be Sinai? Yeah, well, perhaps. It could be Mount Sinai. Or perhaps another sanctuary entirely. Well, keep reading. Verse 18 says this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Well, from where? From the mountain, from the abode, from Mount Sinai? Well, probably not, since Yahweh will leave forever Sinai when he goes with the Israelites into the promised land. He's, he doesn't go back. Yahweh doesn't show up on Mount Sinai again and say, hey, I, I live here really. No, he's going to live with Israel. But where is he going to live with Israel? Well, in the temple. See, in, in Old Testament theology, the language we see here fits very nicely with the ideology of the temple in Jerusalem as the sanctuary, the abode, the mountain, Mount Zion, right? The temple's on a mountain. And theologically, Mount Zion takes the place of Mount Sinai in Israelite theology. It's from there that Yahweh will rule, not through the kings, but forever and ever. We see this language in various places in the Old Testament, including the Psalms and 2 Samuel 7. All right, so what? Well, for one thing, okay, this allusion to the temple suggests that this ancient poem, well, remember, it's it's ancient like pre-David, but it may have been added to as time went on to reflect Israel's growing theology, its developing theology. In other words, this ancient poem, chapter 15, may have gotten its final shape after the Israelites were settled in the land with their own king and temple. See, note that, and I hope your English translations get this because some don't, note that the entire poem, all the stuff that talks about the Exodus, and now all the stuff that seems to be talking about the conquest of the land and entering it and building a temple where you're always going to be worshipped, all that stuff is in the past tense. See, for this writer, both the Exodus and the establishment of the monarchy and the religious life of the people, those things are past events. And I think that's interesting because it suggests something, once again, of the dating or at least the general time frame of when this stuff was written. Or when this poem, when this song got its final form. Probably well into the monarchy, if not later. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world 
and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now, again, it's interesting. Some translations put the second half of this poem that talks about the land and the temple as future to avoid this kind of conclusion, but I, I think that they're wrong. I think the Hebrew really lends itself just very naturally to just keep reading everything in the past tense. There's no indication you should switch to future in Hebrew when you get to this part. Okay, another so what? Why am I dragging this out? I'm not dragging it out. I think it's really interesting. Another so what? This is a huge issue because scholars routinely, and I think correctly, see the temple on Mount Zion as a replacement for Mount Sinai. I mentioned that before, but I'm going to say it again. The temple mount replaces Mount Sinai. Or perhaps, now we're getting into the stratosphere, folks, perhaps, as is more commonly thought, I think, among biblical scholars, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Sinai is the later Israelite temple brought back into ancient mythic time. How's that for a mouthful? See, put it this way. Which came first? The depiction of Mount Sinai as a sanctuary, as an abode, as a holy mountain, and then the temple is modeled after that? Or is the temple there first, and then the stories of Sinai are written in such a way to reflect that later glory of the temple? Which came first? Now, that's a lot to wrap our arms around. That's actually a few podcast episodes all by itself. I only bring it up here because it might help explain the ambiguity of verses 17 and 18. You're reading it, and, you know, what are we talking about? Sinai or Zion? And that's a good question. Maybe that ambiguity is intentional. Maybe they're both the same. And by the way, if you're really motivated, uh, I really highly recommend a book by one of my professors, John Levinson, called Sinai and Zion. The book is those two mountains comparing them and how they're sort of analogous to each other. It's, it's really a fascinating book, but... Anyway, enough of that. I should plug my own books, not somebody else's. What's wrong with me? <sighs> okay. Okay, a lot more to this, but let's let's move on to the second part, the journey to Sinai itself. That begins at the end of 15 and goes through 19. And here's the big picture. Okay, after Moses' song that we just went through, 
His sister Miriam and the women, they sing what looks like the same song, and then they all head out to the desert, where they are immediately thirsty and wonder why no one thought ahead that this might be a problem. Right, they're in the wilderness, for heaven's sake. So, they take a couple of drinks in a couple of special places, and then they receive the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. And manna is really, that's, that's the Hebrew word, mana, which means, what is it? Because that's what the Israelites say. What? I might say, what the heck is this? But I don't think there's a Hebrew word for that. But, you know, what is this stuff that lands like dew on the ground? We're supposed to eat it? Come again? That's, uh, what is this stuff, right? Hey, everyone. My name is Kevin Hofer, and I'm from Minden, Nevada. One thing I've really appreciated about this podcast is that it has given me a much needed and new perspective on how to approach the Bible. I also really appreciate Pete and Jared's extensive knowledge of Scripture, but more than that, I appreciate their humble approach to the complexities each one of us face in our faith journeys. If you have gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you too can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be a part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you're not able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. We especially want to say thanks to John C. Bruss, Sean Michael Phillips, Dorsey Marshall, Michelle Oni Snyder, Scott Goldman, Britt Miracle, Trevor Birak, and Esther Getz. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. So next, after that, they get a miraculous supply of water from a rock, just in time to ward off an attack by the Amalekites. Where did they come from? Well, this is the first battle, and things are moving rather quickly here in this story. And next, you know, they keep moving. Remember, they're going towards uh, Mount Sinai. And next, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up, and he advises Moses to get some help herding the cats, so to speak, judging the people adjudicating differences, things like that. Now, you might be asking what Jethro is doing there, but remember, he is where? He is from Midian. So, on the way to Sinai, we are close to Midian, it seems. And that is, you know, we touched on this in in the first episode, Mount Sinai and the logic of the story seems to be in Midian, not in the Sinai Peninsula way south of St. Catherine's Monastery, look on a study Bible map, but it seems to be someplace in Midian. That's the logic of the story. Then finally, after three months, they reach Sinai, and the people are consecrated by going through a cleansing ritual, because you know they're going to meet this powerful god who defeated the Egyptian pantheon and the army by all these signs and wonders. That's the gist of what's happening in the end of 15 through 19. So, here are just a few highlights. Okay, first, Water and food are going to be a problem because we're in the wilderness. And we actually see two miraculous supplies of water. The first is turning the bitter waters of Mara into sweet water. Now, it happens to be that Mara in Hebrew means bitterness. So, this story is often seen by scholars as a story written to explain some phenomenon. In this case, why this location is called bitterness of all the 
things to call a town. Why call it bitterness? Well, this story is written to sort of explain that. You know, we, we know of stories like this, too, just maybe it helps to think of it outside of the Bible, but, you know, where do things like sickness, death, and evil come from? Well, Pandora opened a box, or Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. See, these are stories called etiological stories that seem to be written to explain why things are the way they are. You know, why is the Grand Canyon so deep? Because Paul Bunyan and his ox, what is it, best or something? You know, they had a wrestling match or something, and that's, that's what I go up. It's, it's, it's a story written, told to explain a phenomena. And that might be what's happening with the site Mara, calling it bitterness, and the story of making the bitter water sweet by throwing a branch in there. Now, the second miraculous supply of water happens at a place called Rephidim. This is in chapter 17 already. The people grumble again, which makes sense because, you know, they had gotten a drink at Marah and at another place called Elim, which is sort of an oasis, but now they left those places and they still need water, so they complain. In essence saying, again, Moses, what are you trying to do? Kill us? So, Moses is told by God to strike a rock to let water flow out of it, which he does. And Moses promptly gives the place two names, Massah and Meribah, which mean test, they're testing God, and quarrel. Again, possibly stories to explain how locations got their names, possibly. But you see, here's the thing. Water for the Israelites presented more of a problem for them than food because, see, in between these two water stories, the waters of Marah, and here are the waters at Rephidim. In between these two stories, God gives them bread from heaven, the manna, to eat. And that manna is promised by God to come every morning with the morning dew, except on the Sabbath, so gather twice as much the day before. Side issue, gathering bread on the Sabbath would be work, and you don't do work on the Sabbath, even though, oh gosh, there's no actual Sabbath command given until chapter 20. So, I just wonder, you know, in the logic of the story, were the people thinking, oh, what's a, what do you mean Sabbath? <laughs> Where'd that come from? Or, are we seeing again the story written from a later point of view where Sabbath keeping was already a thing? Questions that are really hard to answer definitively, but I'm intrigued at least enough to ask them because I think they let us in a little bit onto the nature of this literature. Well, anyway, the manna is a daily gift from God for the entire 40 years they wander in the wilderness. It doesn't cease until they come to the borders of Canaan. And we read that in 1615. Uh, sorry, 1635. And it's also stated in Joshua chapter 5. In other words, you know, it ceases after they've entered the land. They have bread to eat for 40 years. Great. But no such permanent supply of water is given in this story, so they're left to wander, maybe stress out about all that. See, not, not to get off the track, but again, this is so intriguing to me, and this is the kind of stuff that reading Exodus just sort of jumps out at me as I read it. But we see a close version of this very same story of getting water from a rock in Exodus chapter 20. That's toward the end of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And there too, water comes from a rock. 
Now, ancient Jewish interpreters, this is before the time of the New Testament, ancient Jewish interpreters, perhaps also wondering why there was no daily provision of water, came up with a rather ingenious solution. The rock of Exodus 17 that gave water, and the rock of Numbers 20 that gave water, though they're separated by 40 years and located in completely different places, were one and the same rock, which had apparently rolled around the wilderness for 40 years supplying water, like a portable water fountain. Now, one reason I find that so fascinating is because Paul, our very own Paul, in 1 Corinthians seems to be aware of this rather creative explanation and even drops it into chapter 10, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians. See, he recalls this episode of the Israelites in the wilderness, and he talks about how the rock back in Moses' day was Christ, meaning Paul, I think, is simply trying to say that Christ's presence was with them too. A very Paul thing to say. Very New Testament thing to say. But note that Paul doesn't just say the rock was Christ, making a Christological connection. He says, the rock that followed them, followed the Israelites, was Christ. See, followed. He got that idea from somewhere. He got it from his Jewish tradition. Now, I know we're just biting off a big chunk off to the side here, and if you're interested, I talk more about this and the Bible tells me so, and sorry for the deviation, but I just love looking at how Jewish the New Testament writers were when they used their Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. And it's actually this story specifically that started me down a different path thirty over 30 years ago about thinking about how the Bible actually works and what it is and how we read it. Okay, enough about that stuff, but maybe one more comment on the manna. Let's pause there for one more second. We are told that they are to gather an omer, O-M-E-R, an omer of manna per day, two omers on the day before the Sabbath, so you can eat for two days. Now, an omer, what the heck is that? Well, my study Bible tells me an omer is a unit of measurement, and it's about one to two liters, which frankly is no help to me because I'm American and my phone app says that a cubic liter is about a half dry gallon, right? Not that I care too much, but my point is that Exodus 16.36 seems like it needs to explain what an omer is, because this is what Exodus 16.36 says. It says, an omer is a tenth of an ephah. An ephah is about 23 liters or somewhere between five to six gallons, much bigger. All right, could I pick a more boring verse to mention? I, I, I don't think so. Not for me, anyway. An omer is a measurement known to us only from this story. The ephah is the more common measurement in the Old Testament used over 30 times. See, we're seeing here again a clue about when this story was written. It seems that the story of omers of manna being gathered preserves something of the past, maybe the deep past from the point of view of the later biblical writer. And he needed to explain what that was to his readers who lived at a time when ephah was the measurement used. In in other words, we're seeing here in this little editorial comment a hint of how these biblical stories have a history. Maybe they've developed and they've evolved and things needed to be added as things were had and handed down. You know, it's like us reading in the New Testament, maybe you've come across this, and we have footnotes that explain a denarius. 
You know, that's a unit of, of coinage. A denarius is about a day's wage. That's what my study Bible says. Now, today, a day's wage, I actually Googled this because, I don't know, I just like this. I Googled this, a day's, an average laborer's day's wage today is $14.57 an hour, which is $116.56 a day. Okay, you know, it actually helps to know that a little bit, because, you know, a denarius is about a day's wage. Well, what was a day's wage? What would it be for us? You know, this is, it helps us put it into context. It helps us understand it, because simply to say denarius means, what do I care? I don't even know what that means. Oh, it's about what a worker makes in a day. Okay, well, it's about, you know, 15 bucks an hour, maybe 120 bucks. Okay, I get it. Okay, anyway, so much for food and water. Another point. The Israelites right away find themselves in a battle against the Amalekites. This is in chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. And for one thing, it's worth asking, frankly, whence the Israelites got their weapons? Now, Exodus does say earlier in the story that they left Egypt with plunder, like clothes and valuables. And it's really unlikely the Egyptians would have decked them out in military gear, right? I don't think I'm crazy for just suggesting that. So, one explanation for where they got their armor and their swords and their shields from, one explanation that ancient Jewish interpreters came up with was that the Israelites stripped, listen to this, they stripped the armor and the weapons off of the Egyptian soldiers whose dead bodies washed up on the shore of the Sea of Reeds. And that actually makes some sense if you think about it. But it's worth noting that the story itself doesn't seem at all concerned about filling in this logical gap. I don't think the writer actually cared very much. I also think that a story of an Amalekite battle here might be for the purpose of giving the later readers something to chew on, seeing that the Amalekites were enemies during the times of David and Saul in their attempts to sort of unify the Israel around a monarchy. Now, I'm willing to, you know, think more about that to entertain that possibility. I have a feeling that this may be more complicated than what we've seen before, you know, sort of reading Israel's later history back into an earlier time. Amalekites have been around for a long time. I don't, I don't think it's just sort of a made-up thing necessarily. Um, but I, there may be something more to it than what I'm seeing but again, we do see this sort of thing elsewhere where the writer places something of his present back in the past. In other words, what I'm saying is that I don't really know. But it is curious that like the first thing that happens when they come into the land is they have a f- battle with the Amalekites. And the thing is, it's not just that they have a battle. However we explain that, the story also serves a purpose, a couple of things. One, of introducing Joshua as Moses' general, and he plays obviously a huge role later on in the conquest of Canaan. And I see this sort of as a bridge between the Egypt experience and then the later experience in Canaan. We have here Joshua teaming up with Moses, so to speak, bringing an end to an enemy. See, Joshua is going to be that bridge for the people between the Egypt experience and then later the conquest of Canaan. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And let, let me elaborate on that a little bit more. I, again, I think it's important. We have to look at how they win the battle at all. This whole deal of how they win the battle. See, Moses climbs a hill and he stands there with his arms raised. Right? You know the story. I've heard many sermons on this. As long as his arms are up, the Israelites are winning. When they drop down, they begin to lose. So, Brother Aaron and some guy named Hur, who will appear later in the story, they see what's happening, and they rush over to have Moses, listen, you're old, sit down on a rock, and they propped up his arms with rocks. And so, by sunset, the Amalekites were defeated. And frankly, folks, that's a little bit weird. I mean, some commentaries say this seems somewhat magical, almost. Hmm. Well, you know, one way of looking at this is that Moses was holding his staff in his raised arms. It's not mentioned so, I want to be very cautious about that, but one way of thinking about it is holding up a staff in his raised arms. That's why his arms are raised. He has a staff. In other words, this is another Egypt-like miracle, which makes some sense since the Amalekites are playing an Egypt-like role in trying to squash the Israelites, even when their God was with them and had other plans. See, the, the power that delivered them from Pharaoh will also now deliver them from the Amalekites who will also be the God who delivers them from the Canaanites. Joshua and Moses are in this Amalekite episode. It's just Moses in Egypt. It's just Joshua and Canaan. But here the two are together. And it's like a continuation of the, the, the promise, let's say, that the warrior God will continue being with them in fighting battles. Moses isn't here. That's okay. Joshua is. And he was with Moses before. They're, they're tight, so it'll be good. But okay, it, but it's still weird. See, this whole battle depends on Moses not getting tired. And the best explanation I can come up with is what I just said. I think this is sort of like an extended Egypt-like experience where the staff comes into play, and as a result, the sign and the wonder is done. It's a better explanation. It's the one that I go with. It's better in any case than some more common explanations like Moses' arms were raised in prayer to God. There's nothing in the context that hints at that at all. Or a popular Christian explanation that Moses' arms were raised, and you know where this is going, Moses' arms were raised like Jesus' arms were raised on the cross. Now, on one level, I think that's fine. It's, it's well attested in church history. It's fine for Christians to bring these stories and Jesus together like this, but that doesn't really help me understand what the writer here is trying to communicate. I don't think he's saying, let's slip something in here about Jesus. It means something to them. And again, as I said, perhaps this is an extension or a continuation of Exodus power. 
at this moment. But it's still one of the weirder episodes in Exodus, isn't it? It's, you know, along with God almost killing Moses right after he had told him to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites back in chapter 4. These are just weird things that happen in Exodus. Now, another point here in this second big section on the way to Sinai, just a quick comment on Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Now, Moses and the Israelites, they're close to Sinai in Midian, and so Jethro comes out to meet them with Moses' wife and two sons. This is in 18.6. They had been staying, apparently, with Joseph while Moses was busy at work. Now, earlier in chapter 4, if you remember, we hear of just one son, Gershom. But now we see he has a second son, Eliezer. Okay, fine, not a big deal. Just didn't mention Eliezer back then, who cares? But there is actually a bigger problem here. According to Exodus 4.20, and that story where God almost kills Moses, we read there that Moses, that Moses' wife Zipporah and their one son were with Moses on his way to Egypt. That's when the angel of the Lord almost attacks them and kills Moses. They weren't with Jethro and Midian. They were with Moses on the way to Egypt. See, it seems here in this boring little detail, that we're seeing again evidence of multiple traditions of the Exodus story that were respected enough to be woven together in the making of this book we have before us today. And as is usually the case, I say it again, the fact that the traditions don't line up with each other doesn't seem to bother the editor at all. And I want to suggest it shouldn't bother us, it should be actually a window to helping us understand the nature of this literature. So, here's Moses, right? And he tells Jethro all that had happened in Egypt, which is a nice development in their relationship, so to speak. You remember when he left Jethro, Moses couldn't quite bring himself to tell Jethro the truth of why he was leaving? Right? Which is to say, you know, God told me to leave to deliver the Israelites. Moses just mumbled something about needing to see how his kindred were doing. You know, I got to check in on my family. That's in 418. But now Moses, he just puts it out there. He's just got this feeling of confidence. He just puts it out there like a son-in-law who earned his stripes, and now his father-in-law can be proud of him. And by the way, I have a son-in-law, and I, you know, was a son-in-law myself. So, I get this. Anybody who, who, who's lived this can understand. You know, it's like they've reached a new stage in their relationship where shy and unconfident Moses feels like, yeah, sure, I stare down Pharaoh. I stood there and watch the sea split in half, I think I can handle Jethro. Hey, Jethro, let me tell you what's been going on. And how does Jethro react? Well, he's blown away. Enough to confess Yahweh as greater than all the gods. Again, another monolatry thing. (laughs) But not so fast, Moses. See, right after that, Moses, we read, is burned out from judging disputes between the Israelites, who apparently form a line outside his door from morning till night. And Jethro sees what's going on, that maybe all this is actually too much for Moses, and tells him, well, it looks like he could use some help there, pal. You should get some able men to help you divide the tasks and leave you to handle only the most important ones. Not feeling so big now, are you, Moses? Hmm. You know, frankly, I'm not sure if that family dynamic is central to this episode. And I know some friends of mine who think 
this story as a, as a proof text for how God ordained Presbyterian church government. You have a head pastor surrounded by his male elders. Maybe. But maybe the biggest point of the story is that this bureaucracy of Israel is the brainchild of a non-Israelite, a priest of Midian, Jethro. See, here's the thing. Israel seems to owe a lot to Midian. After all, that's where God's mountain is. There's something about Midian that's important for the origin of the Israelite religion, let's say. And scholars have long wondered whether the origin of Israel's religion, which historically is a very complicated thing and very mysterious thing too, I might add, but whether the origin of Israel's religion might owe something to Midian in the Deep South, with respect to where Israel is in the Deep South, alongside of other stories the Israelites preserved, like our ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean. This is more in the north, and you can see this in Deuteronomy 26.6. Or, they were from the Far East, in the land of Babylon. See, that's where Abraham is from. Or, as we read here in this story, some connection historically, some rootage in the land of Egypt. See, the story of Israel in the Old Testament seems to suggest that Israelites have various, let's say, points of ancestry, and that were later united under Yahweh's banner. Maybe. I think that's true. To me, that explanation makes the most sense. But in this story, the only point is that Midian is very prominent in this story, in this ancient telling of the story of the departure from Egypt. Okay, moving toward the end here. Um, they all reach Sinai three months to the day after they left Egypt. This is in chapter 19. And two things strike me. First, even though God rules all the earth, as we read, Israel is God's special possession. And their role will be to be a, this is in, in, in verse 6, chapter 19, their role will be to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And I think this is huge. This means that Israel's purpose, already here in the story, is to be priestly, to mediate between God and who? The nations. And feel free to think back to the story of Abraham in chapter 12, where Abraham is called, and Abraham will have an influence on the nations themselves. So, here you have it. You're to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's why you're here. And that was a plan, anyway. They were rescued from Egypt not to go free, but to become holy, which means just set apart for a special purpose. It's not about moral perfection. We have to get that notion out of our heads. But to act as priests, mediating God to the nations around them. See, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation, those aren't two separate things. They're actually two parts of one role. And that's why it's so tragic in Israel's story, as we read on in the Old Testament, that rather than mediating God to the nations, Israel, through its kings, winds up becoming a problem that God needs to solve somehow. And in some cases, doesn't solve at all. The northern tribes, the northern kingdom, go to Assyria and never come back. And then the southern tribe of Judah 
goes into exile in Babylon and comes back and has to rebuild, but never really does. See, this plan to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation doesn't work out very well. But that was the plan. And another point here, it, it seems that no one is to touch the mountain itself. You know, keep your distance. In fact, they're to wash their clothes and abstain from sex to prepare to meet God at a distance. Now, Moses, of course, may go up the mountain. He can go to the top, but only he. The holiness of the mountain must be protected. And I only mention this here because a little later in the story, in fact, in the next episode of this podcast series, we will see more clearly how the holy mountain is marked off in, let's call them, segments. Three, to be specific, which reminds us of the tabernacle, which is also the model for the temple later on during the time of the monarchy. See, hanging around the outside of the sanctuary, like at a distance, is fine. Let's say the temple. Only priests can enter the next stage, the holy place. But into the Holy of Holies, the third stage, only one may enter the high priest. See, Moses here on Mount Sinai is like a high priest entering God's most sacred presence. Now, you may remember that chapter 6. You know, it's sort of a boring chapter because there's a genealogy in it, but it makes a big deal of letting you know that Aaron and Moses are from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And here we're beginning to see why. We also see here what is glimpsed earlier in the Song of Moses in chapter 15, that the temple and Sinai are closely connected. To speak of one is to speak virtually of the other. Both are marked off in segments of approachability, let's call it. So, in chapter 19, Moses is spending some time hearing from God on the top of Mount Sinai, and he is about to come down and tell the people what he heard and what God wants from them, and what God is going to do for them. But that is the topic for the next episode, where we look at the section of law in the book of Exodus. All right, folks, thanks again for listening to another episode here of the Exodus series. I appreciate you listening and pressing download and all that stuff. Again, just a quick reminder, the Pay What You Want class discussing Genesis is September 23rd, and also I'll be at Evolving Faith October 4th and 5th in Denver, Colorado this year. Tickets are still available. Hope you can make it. All right, folks, thanks so much for listening. See you next time.